Welcome to Beyond the Seminar. I'm Randy Carney, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering here at UC Davis, and each week I sit down to have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting our department's seminar series. Today, I am joined by Dr. Nu Li Shan, professor of mechanical engineering at Seoul National University. His lab has pioneered the development of organ-on-a-chip models, small fluidic devices that integrate numerous cells to boil down the essential functions of a given organ onto a microchip. This technology has great potential to revolutionize personalized medicine, and Professor Sean's group in Korea focuses on scaling up this technology for global manufacturing, making possible high-throughput screening for quickly identifying the next generation of anti-cancer drugs and more, potentially bypassing the need to test them on preclinical animal models. Here's our conversation. So yeah, welcome to the the podcast. I really enjoyed your your seminar this morning. Um, your lab is really focusing uh, on the field of an organ on a chip. Um, can you just briefly sort of give us an introduction on what that concept is? So you can think of it as a miniaturized tissue that can fit inside a small, say, 96 well or a very, very small, um, I guess, petri dish. So it combines the biology of tissue engineering with the miniaturization of microfluidics to mimic our organs. We could It could be heart, lung, skin, or sometimes a disease state that can be um, cancer or other, other diseases so that we could understand and understand the mechanism of action of how different cells affect each other in that controlled environment and when we perturb it with uh, with drugs or other um, other other modalities, we can uh, observe what happens in real time and in in a very precise manner. So, so instead of diagnostics, we're detecting certain molecules very fast, um, very accurately. Uh, we are adding cells, and then we are kind of detecting what the cells are doing among themselves, as well as different chemicals that kind of get produced by them, yeah. Historically, we've always kind of um, grown cells in a 2D flat plate, right? Yes, so you yeah. want to study the lung cancer, you take uh, one type of lung cancer, um, which may not be representative of all of the types of lung cancer. You grow them on a on a plate. Of course, in real life, they're growing in, in 3D. Yeah. And so, you know, you're using this these microfluidic chips to advance to a more 3D model where it's not just the cells. Now it's all these other components, like, yes. like you're saying. Um but of course, the real organ is even another level of complexity. So, yeah. how do you, you know, pick the right aspects to be more like, you know, a lung or or a heart? How how tricky is that to customize these? I think most of the time you see, you see groups specializing in certain organs, and the way they do that is, I think, they try to uh, um, kind of think about what's the most essential part of that organ so for lung maybe it's a mechanical motion um, for the gut it's the stem cells that's renewing constantly renewing the um, the cells in the in the gut um, for cancer maybe it could be the vasculature so so I think just picking what's the most important what are the most important functions is it the mechanical part or is it the interplay between 
say the vasculature with the tumors with the immune cells that's the important so you fix that parameter first and then try to have try to kind of reconstruct it as reproducible from one chip to the next one of the things that strikes me about your team's work is that you're focused on high throughput applications of, of microfluidic organon yes. chips. So uh, there's lots of pioneering work, your lab included, that have sort of developed new models, but they're hard to make technically. Um, the throughput is low. It takes specialized trainees with those exact skills to make those. And therefore, they're not very easily broadly adoptable to do high throughput drug screening or or things like that. So what, what sort of you know innovations is your lab trying to um, think about when you're trying to make these these uh, chips high throughput? Yeah, so I mean, I I was kind of lucky to start in microfluidics when it was just starting. So when I was a postdoc, I think that was the f- I think in the beginning of combining cells with microfluidics. So at that time, we were simply maybe putting in cell suspensions into microfluidic channels. Um, exposing them to flow, or just simply culturing them. So I guess that was kind of the beginning. But um, as I worked on this field, and and as I think as most of your audience who are biomedical engineers uh, would realize that it's just not the tool that's important, but it's the what's the most the, for me I think, and for I think for a lot of BME audience, what they should think about is the the question that you can solve with the tools. And I think the tools are really enabling, but if you just develop your own tool that nobody uses, it's kind of, in a way, oh, you know, good effort that's being wasted. So, I mean, I've heard some, I mean, I don't want to kind of generalize the field, but there are a lot of like engineering and some kind of physics uh, um, research physics research that made very sophisticated tools, but they could only be replicated in their lab. Or even sometimes when the grad students or the people who work on it leave, you know, it just gets lost. So, um, but I think, so kind of seeing that I, I, like from early on, I wanted to maybe focus on the question first. I mean, and then the problem and then develop the tools that can solve the problem. So, so, and when when I thought about that, I think the the throughput was the most important factor because with the biology, there are so many things happening with live cells. And and when I was beginning, we were doing experiments with beads, for example. But then, having putting beads in a channel compared to culturing cells in a channel is a completely different story. Um, and also when you're culturing cell lines or cancer cells to culturing neurons or other primary stem cells, it's also another level of um, quantum leap in some sense. Because and, and the cells behave very differently. So we want to, as kind of more having a more physical um, engineering science background, we wanted to have a robust, reproducible results and. Only when you have reproducible results, you can ha- you can re- have real deep understanding. And I wanted to do more work where you know where it just varies from animal to animal. You know, because of the simple fact that they're just different 
animal, it was really, I guess, kind of perplexing for me to understand that you cannot, how can you make a conclusion out of, you know, with, a, with an end that's so small, um, that varies very widely. So um, I think I think that's where we can add, yeah. And a lot of what you guys are doing, it's it's not just, you know, when I think you're talking about the lung or an organ. Um, of course, you have the cells that are resident to those tissues, but you also have blood vessels, right, mm -hmm. perfusion. Um, why is it so important to have perfusible blood vessels and and how are you achieving mm -hmm. that in your in your chips oh okay so well actually that question kind of brings me back to my um early career when i was at uc irvine because um steve george you know your chair was a chair at uc irvine who hired me <laughs> <laughs> and actually he is the one and we live right next to each other basically on our campus housing and he's the one actually who taught me about um endothelial cell culture and using fibrin gel actually yeah. right so like most research we didn't want to form perfusible vessels in the beginning <laughs> it so happened that they became perfusible uh, i mean in the the first set of experiments we were forming actually vessels in the chip that are still at uci but we were making kind of vessels that were not, I mean, they were vessels with 3D lumen, but they would, they would not really flow anything. It was just like, they would just sprout in the gel, but not really have an opening that we can, opening and end, I mean, that we can perfuse things. So I think uh, that kind of uh, happened by accident, by putting in our cells in separate places. So. I think for the graduates, uh, one of the lessons is that I think this type of kind of accidents um, really, but you need to be ready, I guess, in a way. But yeah, we didn't have labeled cells at that time, right? So labeled endothelial cells were very difficult to make. The viruses don't work well with endothelial cells. So we, we put them separately outside before we would put them together and they would just form vessels, really nice vessels. but they were in that opening, but we had them placed in a totally separate compartments that kind of accidentally opened the uh, vessel. So yeah, that is. So now that you have these perfusible networks, you're able to um, essentially screen drugs yeah, yeah. Um, and, and other molecules. So um, uh, you had this powerful slide in your talk where you talked about the conventional pipeline of testing drugs. You start with thousands of drugs. You need to then conventionally test them in preclinical models like these 2D cell culture models or even lower throughput and maybe not or finding that applicable to humans then you you can also use animal models like like mice and, and rats and then of course to human clinical trials and then through fda approval to actually get the the drugs and more recently the the fda has passed a new legislation that in effect said not all drugs have to be tested in animal models to actually make it to human clinical trials in large part because of the technological breakthroughs that that teams like like you are are creating so what impact is that having on on the type of technologies that you're continuing to develop yeah so i think so as you mentioned the uh, recent so like last january 13th they passed the uh, fda modernization act and i think that's that's like a culmination of um effort from the field uh in trying to apply this type of technology um to improve our um drug screening i mean drug development so process, the idea right? that yeah. they're now they're ready for you know some the these organ on a chip could actually recapitulate the human microenvironment as good or better than conventional mm. animal models? 
I, I think in certain aspects, especially like in rare disease or cases where you cannot ca simply carry on a clinical trial because you don't have the patient's number, patient number to do those. So I think that's where they're going to be start making exceptions. In the beginning, I think also was the safety and toxicity because just having a human heart or human liver cells growing in 3D that react to drugs are much more representative than, you know, a mouse model of, you know, kind of trying to screen for toxicity. So what about the personalized medicine? Because I know a lot of one of the major breakthroughs we've had in the past several years in cancer is this realization that every patient is different, even if they have the same, you know, diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. They react to drugs differently. They're resistant to certain therapies or they work well for other people. We have these big disparities. How is the this new idea of personalized medicine amenable to these organ on a chip? Yeah, so uh, that's a really excellent question. And so what I, I, didn't, I didn't get to show today, but um, we have uh, some preliminary results of um, cancer cells derived from patients. So patient-derived cells placed within our microfluidic chips and, and perfused with perfusible vessels. And... They all show very different behavior, like from patient to patient. Kind of this kind of efforts of combining microfluidic chip technology with personalized patient-derived cells, so that we could test different drug combinations, for example. So that that was kind of our um, uh, our approach. So we wanted to um, combine the genomic data as well as this type of phenotypic data, and then maybe hopefully this type of uh, combined information will be a better indicator of how each person will act or respond to uh, different therapies. And especially nowadays, I think with these uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors that's um, being widely adopted, uh, we still don't know how some, only like 20, 20 to 30 percent of the patients respond to checkpoint blockades, but we don't know the reason why, right? And it's still a very big question um, in the field. So, but if we can test each patient's um, tumor in this in vitro setting with this different checkpoint blockades or different combination therapies, I think it'll it'll maybe push the forward. I think it's, I mean, it's a long way forward because it's the clinical side of it, but I think it's something that's that we're uh, striving in the future. And, and especially kind of going back to the checkpoint blockade, I think there there's just way too many drugs that's being developed they're running out of patients to, do, to run clinical trials. So, so I think uh, uh, this type of devices will hopefully um, kind of help in that regard. Yeah, again, yeah, a yeah. lot of it comes down to throughput yeah, that yeah, you're trying yeah. to improve. Yeah. For people not in the field, maybe besides what we talked about already, are there, is there something you're really excited about of, of new developments for, for working on a chip? Mm, yeah, so I think just like the last couple of questions you asked and you know, trying to develop... Um, personalized organ on a chip for personalized therapy. I mean, that's kind of our ultimate end goal. Um, so in order to do that, as you mentioned, we need to incorporate not just the cancer cells with blood cells, but with, you know, cancer-associated fibroblasts, immune cells, and there are many types of immune cells also, right? So T-cell, NK's, macrophages. So how do we kind of um, recapitulate the in vivo condition um, as close enough, but not 
too simple so that so you you actually recreate enough of the complexity um, so that's kind of the the challenges and some people are trying to even um, I think recreate lymph nodes on a chip and there's I think there was a big leap grant I think yeah so uh, Unfortunately, we missed the grant, but um, I think there are some some uh, groups working on this making artificial lymph node, and you know if you can combine you that, with, that with, yeah, the other, with the tumors, yeah, then then you can have a whole body on a chip. Exactly. Yeah, it's like tumor immune microenvironment on a chip. Cool. Um, yeah. More recently, you you moved from these closed microfluidic systems where all the components are. Um, within four walls, you yeah. use pressure to drive, like kind of like you said, these perfusible vessels. You have an in and out. All the cells are in the middle. Um, you can drive these reagents and drugs and, and cells through. Um, now you're you're working a lot on these open fluidic systems that you equated to more like a river, where you have the mm -hmm. bottom and sides, but the, yeah, yeah. the open on the top. So, what are some of the advantages of opening up the microfluidic channels? Um, so, opening up the microchannels, I think, makes it a lot easier to use. Uh, it makes making the devices, mass producing the devices possible. It also allows us to change the materials so that we can use polystyrene and other kind of conventional plastics that's used in cell culture. And these are easier to scale. Yeah, easier to scale. And it's more compatible with the uh, existing equipments. And just simply, I think, using the closed microfluidic channels, um, there was a kind of a steep learning curve for injecting because it's pressurizing and if you don't have the right amount of back pressure it either it doesn't go or it just bursts so you you need to hit the sweet spot but here with the capillary driven open microfluidics it's the capillarity that's doing the work for you so you just need to pipe it out a certain volume and it just does it by yourself yeah Cool. And of course, a lot of that can be automated. Yeah. So yeah. Again, back and automation. To the throughput. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when did you first get interested in, in, in science? Uh, well, <laughs> you always, did you come out like this just, uh, as, a, as a kid? I, I, I don't know, because it's maybe first time someone asked me that. But I think my, my dad was a scientist, was engineer. So mm. I was always around like university um, research settings. So. So it's like the family business. I, mm, yeah, starting from my dad, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I. So I think I just went to grad school because I thought it was just the way. <laughs> yeah, but I, but making some yeah, work, making something, making instruments or things were always interesting for me. Doing things with my hand. Yeah. So even in high school and things, you were already thinking, okay, university. In some sort of engineering, then grad school in engineering. That was always the plan. Mm, yeah. So, like when I was going to college, it was like the, I think there was maybe the superconductor. They, they were in the news because uh, they just in, found very at that time uh, a very novel material it's called you know room temperature superconducting. Yeah, superconductors, right? Um, so I think that kind of um, uh, nudged me to go into uh, material science. I mean, I always liked chemistry in the high, in high school, and but I wanted to be, I wanted to do something a little bit more applied. So that's why I got into um, kind of the combination of engineering and, uh, and chemistry, which was material science. So it, which, which was very fascinating. So my PhD was doing electronic materials and surface science. Although, although my my actually, I was very 
lucky because my PhD advisor was a chemist who was in the material science department. So um, I think it was a very good fit for me. And also, I mean, the most important thing that he told me, I remember still is that I think a lot, I mean, most of the exciting things happen at the interface, you know, which is all, which can be literally surface science <laughs> that I was doing, but also at the interface of, you know, different disciplines because, you know, there's no straight physics or straight astronomy or, you know, just straight strict biology, right? But it's nowadays medicine or, bi you know, medical, biomedical science or bi biomedical engineering. It's most appealing to me because it's, it's the culmination of everything. You, you know, you need, you need machine learning, right? Nowadays, you need hardware like microscopes, you need optics, um, you need the cells, right? You need the material. So I think it's, it's a source of kind of, you know, never-ending uh, challenges for us to solve. It's a good challenge because, I mean, in, as an engineer, I think, I mean, our, our goal is maybe hopefully we can uh, contribute to um, maybe getting, make a new drug, for example, which can help you know, a lot of people. Then I think sometimes it's also more meaningful than maybe simply making a, a faster computer chip. I mean, that's just my opinion, but which is also important. Yeah, yeah. But it's more fun. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you did your undergrad at Northwestern, um, yeah. and uh, in in material science, yeah. and then went to to University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Yeah. Were you trying to stay close by, or did you just find that professor? And ha uh, how did you make that jump? Oh, I mean, I wanted to go to grad school, but I mean, I I could have stayed at Northwestern also, but professors encouraged me to go away because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be, you know, um, you don't want to stay in one place for too long. Um, so I think to learn new things, I think, and it was a great, uh, great place. I think Illinois had a place called Materials Research Lab, MRL. It was a big uh, NSF-funded centers, and um, in the basement of the building, they had all these state-of-the-art equipment, like you know XPS. I don't know if you guys are aware, but XPS, OJ. You know, they even had like I mean AFM, STM. I mean, you name it. Everything that you needed to do materials characterization was in there. And yeah, I, I had basically keys to all the rooms. I got trained on them. So it was really uh, fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just exploring. That's the perfect yeah, time to, yeah, to just yeah. learn as much as you can. So you're working on sort of interface science at the time. And then you eventually uh, went over to Boston or, yeah. or Cambridge, rather, for... You uh, started working at Harvard and then Harvard Medical School for for a couple postdocs, and there you started doing a lot more biology. Oh yeah, so that was kind of the humbling experience of uh, leaping from uh, physical sciences to biology. But so in the beginning, I mean, I went to Boston to do to make transistors using soft lithography, actually. So I mean, I did write a couple of papers on that. But when I was there, it was such a simulating environment because. George Whiteside's lab had people from all different backgrounds, from, you know, purist like synthetic organic chemistry to electrical engineering, material science, and of course, a lot of uh, chemistry people too. But, um, and there, and George at that time was uh, collaborating with Don Ingberg. Um, and I mean, in the beginning, my project was making transistors and that worked well, but I got more and more interested in the biological applications of this uh, soft lithography that was being developed in the lab. So 
I think in a way I was kind of lucky to be at the you know right place at the right time because looking back that <laughs> that's where all this kind of combination of microfluidics was with um, biology was kind of starting so and in collaboration with um, Ingrid's lab at that time so my my friend and I we would make the chips for micro channels for example PDMS devices we pack it and take the bus over the bridge to the hospital to do to load cells and at that time I just watched you know the other person so as you mentioned earlier that um, I never touched the pipette until <laughs> postdoc late postdoc or right before getting my job and never looked at a biology book until my postdoc second postdoc I mean yeah yeah but then kind of jumping I mean kind of it kind of led me kind of gradually to be I mean, kind of more interested in biology and solving biological problems because nobody could make gradients before physically at a small scale that cells actually uh, sense and respond. So that was very challenging, and we could do that with our microfluidic chip at that time. So, so that was our kind of first project on looking at uh, immune cell chemotaxis. So, so after that, you, you started um, uh, to maybe plot your real job your mm -hmm. professor job is that what we were you thinking at the time like okay now i'm gonna start my own lab at this interface of microfluidics and, and biology yeah yeah so actually luckily i got an offer and i i asked steve that whether whether i could kind of delay my start date to learn and finish up the project and learn culture cells or you know i isolate immune cells from the blood so i wanted to do something bme and when i first went to uh, uci i think i also met uh, a neuroscientist at that time who were who were culturing neurons in a kind of a in a chamber called campagnol chamber which is uh which they used to culture um primary neurons and yeah, he was having a lot of problems and that's where we kind of came up with an idea of culturing uh, neurons in a small confined channels. And that kind of also eventually uh, led to a company um, called Zona Microfluidics. So I think, I think if you can find, I mean, for the students, I think if you find an exciting um, question or problem, I think that will drive the engineering. So meeting a lot of people in biology or in, you know in medicine i think it really helps to kind of focus your research as well of course you you need to have a good foundation on on the physical sciences side in order to kind of jump that way but as i tell my students i think uh it's easier for engineering background students to kind of go into this type of interdisciplinary research because but not vice versa in sometimes because the i'm not all but a lot of the biological uh, based students are not open to trying these new technologies but i think when you apply new technologies that develop like pcr for example now which is you know used everywhere if you're first ones to adopt this type of technology i think you can make a really good impact and i think you can publish papers a little easier than yeah than trying to follow other people's um, footsteps so yeah, i so think having open there yeah, too, yeah yeah there's a lot of advantage doing being the first yeah first guy when yeah. you're thinking back to that time of starting your own lab what were some of the the challenges that you remember I mean, the challenges, I guess it's the same. I mean, having having good people in your lab, 
um, having a good team because I think it's the the initial team that makes or kind of makes the research to kind of uh, flourish because I was very fortunate with my first students and my first postdocs and and they helped me really uh, kind of sold that neuron um, culture chamber as well as this uh, and kind of kind of, kind of uh, continuing on with the chemotaxis papers. So the chemotaxis kind of led to like 3D chemotaxis, which led to this type of uh, uh, blood vessels on a chip. So then you made a, a big jump. You you left Irvine eventually, and, and now you're um, a professor in at Seoul National University. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what what was behind that move? That, that's a big move. Oh uh, yeah, that was a big move. But uh, I think it was um, it was more. I mean, part part family also, and part um, I mean combination of things. I mean, part science also. Going back to Korea, especially mechanical engineering department for you know having a Having a material science training with BME kind of job, but then going into mechanical engineering at that time, you know, which is very kind of a little bit of conservative community. I mean, society. So mechanical engineering in Korea is still traditionally mechanically oriented. I mean, my department. Some departments are a little bit different, but anyway. So, so for me, it was in a way gamble of a choice but I wanted to also and also the department also wanted to um, have someone who could bring in this soft or the biology applications because they also they realized that in the future it's just not the you know auto industry or the shipbuilding industry or other things but um, there was a growing needs of engineers in uh, in biology and medicine for example so I think they they recruited me on that aspect as well, and that was also kind of what I felt that as an engineering engineer, we, I wanted to kind of um, have students educated in this interdisciplinary research, which was kind of exciting for me. Um, I mean, in the U.S., I think at that time, twenty years ago, um, the BME departments were starting, but in Korea, we still don't have um, not many schools have dedicated BME. They still have very kind of rigid walls. So, yeah. So you, you know, the a kind of theme of of your your path. It sounds like you're, you know, working in labs or recruiting people really at the interface between multiple disciplines. Um, and a lot of your students are now and and before, you know, material science, mechanical engineers um, that are learning to deal with biological systems and interfaces in your lab, similar to you mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and my own background. Um, so you know, when you're taking on new students to mentor or other trainees, what sort of skills are, are you looking for? I mean, is there a, mm. a formula to, to <laughs> no, those successful I, students? Um, I mean, not much as a skill, but I mean, I, I, I'm looking for students or who are kind of open and not really afraid of trying new things because I think that's what kind of got me also into this uh, <laughs> um, interdisciplinary research because I think looking back, like one of my first projects with um, primary neurons. Looking back, that was like the most challenging cell type to culture in a chip. <laughs> but then, I mean, it actually took a couple of years for us to kind of um, get it to work in, with like one, basically two dissections every week, right? So it, it was a really challenging uh, but um, time, but we didn't give up. And I think that's kind of been the foundation of our work. So 
Um, I, I look for students who, who are kind of not afraid to change, I mean, to try new things. And, you know, I mean, I think who's interested in, I mean, engineers who've never touched a pipette, who comes to my lab, I think that's a sign that, you know, they're, they're willing to try new things. So yeah, yeah, it's kind yeah, of a double-edged yeah. sword. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're talking about, you need people, I mean, you know, you have the low-hanging fruit and yeah, really impactful yeah. things when you're forging a path at the interface of two new fields, but then you also can't rely on yeah. what's come before. In, in yeah, sense. I mean, that's... Uh, that's that's a challenge that you know I'm still struggling with, because <laughs> yeah we we yeah by the time the students are mature and productive, you know they finish their PhD and then move on to the next phase. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean we try to yeah the cycle starts again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what you know? Do you have a typical morning routine? What is what does a morning look like for you? Uh, morning routine for me. Get uh, up, read a hundred papers. No, <laughs> uh, different morning routine. Um, but in the states, um, I get up, make breakfast for my son, and then <laughs> take him to school. Yeah, but then and then I come back and then do some work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's because I'm on sabbatical. So oh yeah, yeah so you're here at yeah. Stanford now yeah. for for some yeah. months. What's that yeah. experience been like? I mean, I really enjoyed this uh, experience because um, I'm in a very academically vibrant community. Um, I yeah, I love my uh, host lab, which he's he's an old friend, um, but he works in a very different field of um, fluorescent markers, making new fluorescent probes for various intracellular events and things like that. So, so I met him when I was at UCI, and he was. Um, uh, he wanted to look at protein synthesis in neurons, and so we collaborated from yeah maybe twenty years ago or so. Yeah, is the idea so, to bring some of those tools back into your your um, organ on a chip stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm constantly looking for um, uh, collaborators in biology. I mean, of course, the, my host's um, expertise in fluorescent probes to kind of combine it with the cells that we are culturing. And and also any other you know kind of new developments and added, I'm also trying to learn, but like single cell sequencing for example, because that's a recent progress that that I want to kind of keep abreast of. Um, so things like that kind of keeps me busy. You know, is there um, anything people would be surprised to know that you do outside of science? <laughs> oh, uh, things outside of science. Um, I, I wish I had a, a hobby like yours. <laughs> uh, podcasting. Podcasting and <laughs> recording, right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I, I love sports. So, uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Mm, all sorts of sports with balls, like, you know, tennis, table tennis. Uh, used to play soccer, but haven't played that for a while. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, yeah. What's the, this is a question I usually finish uh, these interviews with. Um uh, what's the last greatest thing that you read or watched? Mm. <laughs> greatest things. Well, I would I would say Avatar two. <laughs> oh, you saw that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my son was also very fascinated. But I mean, I I when I looked at I mean, when I watched the movie, it's just fascinating of you know how director kind of came up with that inspiration and I think there's a lot of like 
history that's you know maybe some like American history that's also kind of woven into the plot as well as the setting and all these things it's kind of really an art form I mean in a way right oh, so yeah. I, I get kind of inspired like from the some of the movies because science is kind of also telling a story and you know how do we kind of uh, put together the story, you know, our research story using from inspirations from different um, areas of research, which is kind of interdisciplinary work. I mean, when when we do our um, high throughput, um, say, our work on like this uh, high throughput organ on a chip, you know, we need to integrate things that's happening in sensors, for example, you know, or integrate things happening in stem cells, in organoids, and also in like in, in disease, in clinical practice. I mean, what kind of compounds and what kind of, you know, um, mechanism of action are they kind of going after? Then we want to kind of integrate all that to put it into a, uh, into the hardware so we can kind of solve that problem. So, yeah, it's similar. Yeah, the, yeah. the technologies they used to make that movie weren't even available, you know, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're using those and adopting and yeah, making yeah, beautiful yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, just just like you. Well, great. Where can people find you if they want to connect further? Oh, they can check our website, which is mbel.snu.ac.kr. Yeah, so that's our lab website. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. We're lucky you're on sabbatical close by and we're able to come over to, to our department and chat. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking again soon. Yeah, it was a real uh, pleasure talking to you. And also thanks for the invitation to meet your uh, students and your faculty members.